Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 6. We're reading verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come and we remember that it is in you that we live and that we move and that we have our being. And despite our great turn away from you, you have turned to us and you have given us life through the death and the resurrection of your son. And so now your words, your truth are a gift and they are good. And so, God, we come this morning with eagerness and anticipation to hear you. Direct us and guide us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In her third novel of the Gilead series, Marilyn Robinson tells the story of a woman named Lilla. She was abandoned as a child to live in a home filled with migrant workers, transient workers, Then she was stolen, but no one from the home seemed to care. She lived on the margins of society, traveling from job to job, dabbling in prostitution and other means of pulling things together. She was rough. She struggled to form any type of relational attachment, as you could understand. Lilla passes through Gilead, Iowa, a small town, in which she was on the way to another job, and she stumbled into church one day. It was a rainy day in which she was simply trying to escape the deluge. 67-year-old Pastor John Ames was in the pulpit when Lilla walks in. He befriends her. John's wife had died a number of years before in childbirth, and inexplicably, in a very short time, John commits himself to marry this homeless woman. She had obvious questions like whether she was actually presentable enough to be a pastor's wife, but Ames was determined to offer her a settled existence. And so the couple married. However, as the marriage unfolds through the book, it's directed by Lilla's fears She's afraid that Ames will discard her when she learns the truth about her background. 
And she also doesn't trust herself. She believes that she may walk away from the marriage. Her past life, all her abandonment, all the trauma, all the fear, these cast long shadows into her present relationships and into her present world. As you read, you get the sense that there is this dark, ugly business being transacted in Lilith's soul. It's maddening to read, actually quite frustrating, because Ames is gentle and kind, pouring his affections over this woman who then struggles to receive them. But it is precisely at that moment of frustration where one looks at Lilla and believes that she just simply is incorrigible, that the noose has been drawn. Because at the core of your relationship with God and my relationship with God, there is a similar dynamic at work. You see, we too have been given an undeserved and we have received an unexpected grace that has interrupted our lives and has granted us a restored communion with God, something not deserved. Verse 23 of chapter 6 is perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The contrast is that sin and sin's master pays, remunerates us, but that's not the way God works. God gives gifts. He donates He's a beneficiary. And this grace has been given to us in Jesus. And it brings us into the life of the age to come, forgiving our sins. We are justified purely by Jesus, freed from sin's guilt. And then, as we saw over the last two weeks, we've also been freed from sin's power, that we've been set free from its control. However, lurking in the background is another truth here in Romans 6 that we'll find also pressing into the next chapter. And that is that like Lilla, our past, what Paul calls the old man or the old self, still haunts us. That the shadows are still lingering. That all those habits and all of those activities and all of that control to which we were subject prior to our conversion still hangs out back there and that sin is very much still present. And so the pressing question that we have to answer and that the Apostle Paul is seeking to answer for these Roman Christians and for us today is what exactly are we to do about the ongoing presence of sin in our lives? And there's three things in the second half of Romans 6 that we find. But first, as we deal with that ongoing presence of sin, we are to distance ourselves from counterfeit solutions. Paul begins the chapter with a question, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? He then answers emphatically, by no means. And in this verse, he has introduced us to two key terms, law and grace, that he has used before. But they are terms that we must understand and get inside of. 
because they were being used to provide counterfeit solutions, that is, false or empty solutions to the problem of sin's presence. You see, some were hearing Paul's gospel and they were making this conclusion that the way to deal with sin, the path to freedom, is simply to ignore it. There is no need for obedience. The only obedience that is necessary is that obedience of Jesus. And so we are free to sin all the more because it doesn't really mess it up. Because nothing can undo the love that God has revealed in the cross of his son. And so obedience is unimportant. And Paul answers that just with a firm and a clear no. That that is not the logic of the gospel. But simply to say no to that does not mean then that we are in a meritorious situation. Because this word law is also present. And others, particularly from Jewish backgrounds in the first century, were insisting that law was necessary. That freedom in the Christian life was found on the other side of submission to the law. But Paul has said that you're not under law, you're under grace. And so we have two counterfeit solutions to the problem of sin's presence. One that says, well, you just have license to do whatever you want. Another that says, no, you have no license to do what you want, but you must legalistically follow these prescriptions in order to work your way to freedom. As a young Christian, I was struggling with some of these tensions myself, and I went to seek help from my college minister. And he explained these two general responses. He says, well, on one side of the road, you have the ditch of legalism. On another side of the road, you have the ditch of licentiousness. He said, and you'll find many people around you are in the ditch of licentiousness. And so he then looked at me, and he said, I'll take a legalist any day. And friends, it was at that point massive confusion set in. In fact, it made me want to jump from one ditch to the other. But to recognize that the gospel wasn't just a way between those two ditches. It was actually another way of orienting completely to God. That what was being unfolded here in Romans 6 was a way that helped us see that our acceptance with God is purely by His grace. And that obedience and change that takes place in the Christian life is also completely by His grace. And so if we're to begin to address the presence of sin in our lives, we have to disown all the false strategies. We have to put them away. We have to be able to name them. We have to be able to recognize what they are and be done with them. And this is where Paul begins in teaching us to address the presence of sin. It's disowning all the false strategies. But second, where he takes us, is he's going to say that we must see that we have been emancipated. That is, what the Apostle Paul is going to do is press us to see that something decisive has already happened in our lives. It's easy to miss exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 6, but it's critical to clarify that for Christians, having this foundation constructed, 
and in the bedrock and at the foundation of dealing with the, prom- with the problem of sin is critical to success. Because what Paul is saying here is that in order to address sin is that we must look back on a past event in which a decision has been made for us and that decision is also about us, that it's a verdict. If you follow with me in verses 17 and 18, Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Many people see this language of slaves of righteousness. Paul says it's an inadequate metaphor, but he's not saying that we gain God's favor by becoming slaves and earn our way there. No, in fact, he's saying something quite different. Paul explains here that they had become sincerely obedient to the teaching, the standard of teaching. That's just simply another word for the gospel. To which they were committed. This translation is perhaps not the most helpful. It's important to note that the word behind committed in the original is the same word that we translate either delivered over to or handed over to. Several times, in fact, in the book of Romans, The first time it shows up is in chapter 1 and verse 24 where we're told because of our rebellion against God that we were handed over to our lust. Then we learn in chapter 8 that our Lord Jesus was handed over to death. And here we're told that we've been handed over to the teaching. There's another significant thing to note here and not to be a grammar nerd or grammar Nazi But in sixth grade, under the tutelage of Mrs. Cox, I learned my grammar lessons well. And she explained to me the difference between the active voice and the passive voice. The active voice is where the subject of the sentence performs the action of the verb. In the passive voice, this is where the subject of the sentence receives the action of the verb. And so something is done to the subject. And here, very significantly, When Paul says that we've been given up to the standard of teaching, this is the passive voice. And so what he's saying about you and me is that we have been delivered over, we have been handed over to the teaching of the gospel. And this indicates that God is the one who is acting. God has delivered you. God has given you up. God has done this on your behalf. And then in verse 18, he fills it out. Because what he explains is what it means then for God to deliver you and hand you over. He says, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is what it means for God to deliver us into his teaching. That we have been set free. God announces that in Jesus' death and in Jesus' resurrection that we've been freed from the rule of sin. And friends, in dealing with the presence of sin in our lives, this is the first challenge that we have to encounter. Do we actually believe that in Jesus' death and resurrection, the control and the dominion of sin has been broken? Because you see, this is actually not a matter 
about how we feel. This truth is not determined by how you feel you are doing with sin. It's not a matter that's determined by our current levels of success against sin. It's not a matter reserved for those really, really committed people who we consider to be super Christians. It's not a matter determined by how long we've been members of the church. It's not a matter determined by how much of the Bible we know. No, it's a matter determined by God for all who believe in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who definitively defeated sin and death and the controlling power of sin in his death and in his resurrection. And when we believe in him, we're united to that victory and we share in it. And so we share in his death and we share in his resurrection. And so no matter how we feel, no matter what our experience is in that week, in that day, this is what's true of you because you're united to Christ. You have been set free. This is what God says. This is what God announces. And friends, the challenge that we face is to believe that statement. It is to believe that announcement that this is who God has rendered me to be. This is the verdict that God has passed over my life because of Jesus. And the question is, can we receive that as a gift? But that is foundational for dealing with the presence of sin. And the third and final thing that Paul develops here is then once we have seen this emancipation that has taken place, we are to embrace our freedom As Christians, we're not naive about the presence of sin in our lives. We're not overly triumphalistic. We recognize the passions and the pulls of sin are strong. They twist us and they turn us this way and that. But friends, what Paul is arguing is that we're not left without resources. We're not pressed into our own resources but we're given gifts from God. We're declared to be free from sin's control now by the grace of God. And now it is ours to embrace that freedom, to embrace that determination that God has given to us. But we're something like Old Testament Israel, and it is the story of Old Testament Israel that sits just under the surface of this account. You see, because Israel was redeemed, delivered, taken out of Egypt, Pharaoh had been the harsh taskmaster. He had paid poor wages, and he had given them less and less straw and yet demanded more and more bricks. Their lives were misery. But yet after being delivered on the way to the promised land, we learn in those first five books of the Old Testament that the people began to grumble and they began to say life was better for us in Egypt. They longed to return. And what was happening there when we look at their stubbornness and stiff-neckedness, it's easy to identify there 
But this is the same thing that happens to us. They were failing to embrace the freedom that they had been given. And they were saying it's better for us under the old master. We can recognize it in another story as absurd. But it is that same absurdity that we delve into ourselves. We return to the old master. We know that he's harsh and he's cruel. We know that he fills us with shame and regret, and yet we return time and time again. And our freedom is spelled out for us, though, in verse 19. Halfway through, Paul says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And friends, this is the freedom that you've been given. Our freedom is to walk out. It is to walk away. It is to renounce. It is to revolt. It's to turn against the old ways. That it is this freedom leading to sanctification that God has delivered us into. The old master of sin and the shadows of all of those habits and activities and actions, they still linger. But you are not struggling to be free. What God announces over you is that you have been set free, and now you are free to struggle. You are free to walk out. You are free to renounce. And in all the impartial ways that that will play out in your life and in my life, this is the grace and the freedom of the Christian life. This is the freedom that God has handed us over to. And so, friends, the Christian life is not a Pollyanna existence. It's not one in which we simply say that sin is not real, that we're better than sin, that we say sin is not present. No, in fact, it's brutally honest. Recognizes the depth of sin and the infiltration and the shadows that linger. But in dealing with it, we have to do those things to recognize that there are empty, sometimes very religious-looking solutions that are actually just counterfeits. Paul was addressing religious solutions in verse 15. And what we have to do is remember that in being united to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we have been emancipated. That's a verdict passed over your life. It has nothing to do with your feeling or your performance. It has to do with what God declares about you. And then, friends, we embrace our freedom. This great freedom to walk into sanctification, to say no to the old master, to put behind us those habits. This is what we're liberated into, to turn against the old ways, to say no to Egypt. This is the gospel's free grace for you and me in dealing with the presence of sin. Its power has been broken. And so let's ask God for his help in it.
Father, we do confess today all of our weakness. We recognize it and we feel it. Sin casts long shadows that linger in our lives and continue to impact us and direct so many things. But yet today we also hear another word that the power and the dominion of sin has been broken and now we are free to struggle against it. And so grant us grace. Build up our faith to trust what you say and to build upon it. Help us to embrace our freedom. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.